0: The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you, directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Recovery the Hero's Journey. I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan. Today's topic is sex addiction. It's real, it's devastating, and it's treatable. Sex addiction is common. The prevalence is around 3 to 6% of the population. However, It's not recognized in the DSM-5, which is the Manual of Psychiatric Diagnoses developed by the American Psychiatric Association. The DSM-5 recognizes alcohol and drug use disorders and certain behavioral disorders like internet gaming, gambling, eating disorders. However, they have refused to include sex addiction. As a result, most clinicians have little uh, or no training in treating sex addiction, However, two important official organizations do recognize sex addiction as legitimate. The World Health Organization recognizes sex addiction in the international classification of disease system as compulsive sexual behavior disorder. The American Society of Addiction Medicine recognizes sex addiction as a chronic brain disease, which involves the same brain circuits that are involved in alcohol and drug addiction. I've treated people suffering from addiction in my office for 23 years and I can tell you that sex addiction is very real, and the suffering it creates is massive. A Cambridge functional MRI study showed that when sex addicts are shown pornographic images, we see activation of the amygdala and disruption of the prefrontal cortex. These are the same brain changes that we see when we present drug cues to people addicted to drugs. I'm sure that Nora Volkow, president of NIDA, who has spent her entire career scanning the brains of people addicted to drugs, would agree that sex addiction is indeed a brain disorder that interferes with the the ability to exert free will. It is a condition that deserves our compassion and not our judgment. It is not a moral failing. Today, we're extremely fortunate to have Dr. Alexandra Katahakis as our guest host, Alexandra Katahakis is PhD, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. She is Founder and Clinical Director of Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles and the 2012 Carnes Award Recipient. She is a Certified Sex Addiction Therapist Supervisor. Uh, And certified sex therapist supervisor specializing in the treatment of sexual addiction and other sexual disorders. As a result of her mentorship by Alan Shore, PhD, over the past 10 years, Dr. Katahakis has created a psychobiological approach to the treatment of sex addiction. She is the author of Sex Addiction as Affect Dysregulation: a Neurobiologically Informed Holistic Treatment, co-author of the 2015 ASECT award-winning Mirror of Intimacy, Daily Reflections on Emotional and Erotic Intelligence, contributing author to the Clark Vincent award-winning Making Advances, a Comprehensive Guide for Treating Female Sex and Love Addicts, The chapters include Best Practices in Addressing Attachment Injuries, Healthy Sexuality, Group Therapy, Healthy Relationships, and Therapeutic Considerations and Settings. She is the author of Erotic Intelligence, Igniting Hot Healthy Sex After Recovery from Sex Addiction, and has published in the Psychotherapy Networker and Family Therapy Magazine. In 2009, she published Effective Neuroscience and the Treatment of Sex Addiction, In the Journal of Sexual Addiction and Compulsivity. Dr. Katahakis, thank you very much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you, Patricia. First of all, I'd really like to tell you how much I admire your ability to be empathic and how validating you are to people suffering from sex addiction and their families. Thank you. Do do you have any doubt that sex addiction is real?
2: I, I think if we think of sex addiction as a syndrome, a constellation of behaviors with, in my opinion, neuropsychobiological underpinnings, then it's very real. Uh, I think where the we get um, hung up and where the arguments are is in the term addiction, um, which is an age-old academic argument about whether one can be addicted to sex or not. Um, so that Argument aside, this syndrome and what we see in
1: our offices is very, very real. And why do you think the American Psychiatric Association has such resistance to including it in the DSM 5? Uh, What's the deal?
2: I don't know for certain. I mean, you know, there's that old saying you can't talk about sex without talking about politics. Um, and I think money is involved here also. So I don't know about what goes on behind the scenes. Um, there are people that will argue that there's just not enough science and not enough research. And mm-hmm. it's very hard to get a bunch of people addicted to sex and then study them True. Uh, any more than you could get a bunch of people addicted to cigarettes and then study to see if lung cancer was really coming from cigarettes. Um, there are also, you know, speculation or arguments that the pornography industry is, you know, almost $100 billion year industry worldwide, um, and that so there are, you know, financial forces also that are keeping this out of the DSM. And uh. then there's a faction that considers that if you talk about sex as an addiction, then you are sex negative, um, and that we are going to pathologize sex
1: the way that homosexuality
2: was pathologized once upon a time.
1: That makes sense. That, that makes sense. Even now, we're not saying drug addiction. We're saying a drug use disorder. Correct. And we're not saying alcoholism. We're saying an alcohol use disorder. Right. And I don't call anybody an addict anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, he or she is a person who uh, uh, has an alcohol or drug problem. Right. So yes, uh, if you had your preference, what would you name this
2: I, you know, you I don't know, because just to go back to that, you know, the word addiction means a strong predilection for something. Mm-hmm. So we can be addicted to anything, chocolate ice cream, uh, Pilates, our iPhones. Um, <laughs> work. Work, you name it. So that word is not um, that off base, and, but it's become so pejorative. Um, So I think, you know, the World Health Organization's distinction of compulsive sexual behavior disorder is probably as good as any terminology, but sex addiction is in the zeitgeist, and it's what people recognize when they think they have the problem. Um, I know at Center for Healthy Sex, when people call here to find out about getting help, they don't call and say, hi, I have compulsive sexual behavior disorder. They say, I think I'm a sex addict, or I think I'm a porn addict. Right, exactly. Those horses are out of the barn when it comes to the public. I think when anything that's impulsive becomes compulsive, then it can become addictive. And I've been doing this work now for 23 years, working specifically with men and women who struggle with sex and love addiction. And some of them will say, you know, especially the guys, like, I'm really compulsive. And others will say, I'm an addict. I'm just an addict through and through. I've got to have it. I start looking for it. They describe the symptoms of craving and addiction, so I really let clients call it what they feel fits best for them, um, because I think that is meeting the client where they're at.
1: I, I like your idea. Just let the client name it. and when your clients come to your office knocking on on your door for the first time. Uh, saying I have sex addiction, I'm having a problem with sex. Um, How are they presenting? What do you hear them say in an initial evaluation uh, that would give you an idea that this indeed is a compulsive sexual behavior disorder?
2: what do they present with? First of all, I want to know how people, why they think that's true. So if they say that my wife says I'm a sex addict, that's not diagnostic criteria. So I really do a thorough assessment. And I do use, there are diagnostic criteria that have been published time and again, um, certainly by Patrick Carnes, I think as late as 2009, um, maybe even in the Journal of American Medicine and JAMA. Um, And there are many, many Um, diagnostic criteria that have been listed since 1998. And if you look at them side by side, there's a lot of crossover. So as you mentioned, preoccupation is one of the hallmarks of any addiction. If it's all the person is thinking about all the time, they're always thinking about getting into the sexual experience or covering it up. um, That is a a hallmark of having a problem. Um, Having multiple attempts to stop and not being able to is another sort of clue to someone having compulsive or addictive behavior, mm-hmm. having negative consequences in the face of the problem so that the relationship with the, the thing, whether it's sex or alcohol or food, supersedes every other relationship. Um, and of course, if there are occupational or academic fallout from it, um, because people can't uh, do their jobs well or they're flunking out of school, if they're having familial problems, relationship problems, um, all of those things are the criteria that we look at when we're assessing someone.
1: It's very similar to people presenting with an alcohol or a drug problem. And if there are no consequences, there is no problem.
2: Yeah, I remember in graduate school, I had a teacher who said, if people don't have messes in their lives, which is the unmanageability word, then it's probably
1: not a problem. And if the client doesn't think it's a problem, it's not a problem. And what level of suffering do you witness in the population and where does it come from?
2: Well, I don't know how we can measure that exactly. But um, when people, their lives have blown up, they have literally lost everything that they hold dear, their relationships, their marriages, their children, their jobs, their political careers or medical careers, you name it, there is extreme suffering and despair and immense self-loathing because I've had clients say to me, I saw this coming. I saw it on the horizon and I could not stop. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a massive amount of shame in relation to this problem also on multiple levels for multiple reasons. And oftentimes the act of getting caught, the sex itself is really a symptom of much deeper um, psychobiological issues that go back as far as sometimes infancy. And this particular ism is a way of masking great pain uh, because the person is dissociated from the original assaults. So it's a very deep problem as I see it.
1: I think uh, I remember uh, one fellow I was treating for sex addiction. People usually knock on my door for uh, an alcohol or drug problem. And then as I get to know them, they'll tell me they'll divulge an additional problem of a a sex addiction. And uh, this one fellow who had an addiction to marijuana, an addiction to alcohol and a sex addiction was using escorts and his wife found out about the escorts. And uh, I mean, he could have been arrested and he was an attorney.
2: Well, I've had attorneys arrested.
1: Oh, it's, it's, uh, but he, he continued to use them despite knowing that he could get arrested at any point in time and really, uh, hurt his own career, possible job loss, possible jail time, you know, and, uh, uh, his family. He loved his kids. He loved his wife. And I, I had no reason to doubt that this, this isn't a symptom uh, of um, anything other than what's going on internally.
2: Right, and people will say, oh, sex addiction is just an excuse for behaving badly. Uh, But this person was not out to get his wife on any given day or to, you know, hurt his children. No. Um, He was, you know, compartmentalization is an aspect of dissociation. And so he was really kind of living in a different channel, you might say. Um, And partners will often ask, you know, what were you thinking or why weren't you thinking about us? And the answer is because there was no thinking going on. The higher cortical functions are essentially not operational in that moment. It's all about getting into the experience and the activation internally, um, which is why we call it sex addiction, because it's an internal neurochemical shift and change that creates a
1: high. And and the brain's really been hijacked from... You know, thinking through consequences or oh, thinking yeah. rationally, right? Any kind of right. judgment, any kind of prefrontal cortex inhibition of impulses. It, it's gone by the wayside when they're right. in active addiction. And I, I just always remember any patients I've ever had who's, who've lost their spouse, lost their partner because of an act of sex addiction. Oh, it's devastating. Right. Right. I agree. This isn't any, it's not about love. No, it's not about love at all. Right. It's about
2: these distortions, these attractor states in the brain um, that are creating this problem in a very habituated, highly ritualized way over and over
1: and over again. And so often uh, among my population with people with the alcohol and the drug issues, when they were children, they didn't have a a soothing parental figure, uh, Mm -hmm. right? You know, they didn't have a, a mom who was attuned to them or a dad who spent time with them. They didn't have any, they weren't on anybody's radar, Right. And nobody taught, nobody was soothing or comforting. Nobody was tracking them. So the only time they ever felt alive was if they were to. I mean, what does a kid have at his disposal? He has uh, sex, masturbation, uh, maybe pornography, maybe alcohol, uh, maybe marijuana. And uh, you don't blame these kids for learning how to self soothe. But even predating that, you have fantasy as a neural
2: pathway, which is a dissociative track also. And so children who are not appropriately, I'm sorry to say mothered and parented, Mm -hmm. um, are not getting the appropriate stimulation they need for these structures uh, to function properly in the central and autonomic nervous system in the body. Mm -hmm. So this level of what we call dysregulation becomes more permanent um, because they aren't being regulated. They're not being nurtured. Um, sometimes they're not even being protected by the parent if there's molestation or abuse or alcoholism in the family. And so that kind of you know, assault that's coming into the system that is not being repaired, attended to, um, again, protected, nurtured, uh, is going to create these dissociative structures. And as such, the child has to figure out a way to soothe itself. What Alan Shore talks about, escape when there's no escape, the, the organism naturally takes care of that
1: by dissociation. So these are kids who survived. These are the That's resourceful right. kids, mm-hmm. right? I mean, perhaps they wouldn't have done so well had they not learned some way to feel alive inside Correct.
2: And also you'll get kids that are super smart. So you've got a very strong left brain intellect intact, Mm -hmm. uh, which is when we start to see personality disorders somewhat later, uh, depending on the personality disorder. But these personality disorders are really problems of regulation. Um, And they are mutable and changeable. But early on, if a parent is not reflecting back to the child any sense of self, they're going to figure out what they have to do to get their own needs met. And they can become very resourceful, as you say.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we have to applaud them uh, because there was no other way uh, to feel soothed, to calm down, to numb themselves, or to feel alive. And whether they were using masturbation or pornography or sex at an early age, uh, sometimes um, they're uh, replicating their uh, trauma. Uh, right. sexually, right? Sometimes I'm, I'm not, uh, maybe I'm wrong to say it's self-soothing. Sometimes they're reenacting a childhood uh, trauma. Um, I remember one uh, fellow uh, that I saw a long, long time ago, and he came in my office and he um, came in, knocked on my door for a drinking problem. And after we handled the drinking problem, he said, I think I have a sex addiction. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him about it. And what he was doing was... Um, replicating something that happened to him when he was a boy. And when he was yeah. a little boy, he was in the woods and he was accosted by some uh, an older uh, bully of a, a boy. And that boy forced him to perform oral sex on him. And mm-hmm. it was shaming and it was uh, humiliating and terrifying. Wow. Uh, but at the same time, it felt good. And he identifies as a straight man and he was married. Mm -hmm. And but he would go. His uh, compulsive behavior was to go to adult bookstores and receive oral sex uh, in the male bookstores. But he felt so ashamed of himself. He felt he so much like you said this self loathing, and he couldn't understand what he was doing because he wasn't attracted to men. And he he was a grandfather. He was a father. He -hmm. was an upstanding member of the community. And I remember the shame was just palpable.
2: And- well, the shame and humiliation are fused with sympathetic arousal, right? So arousal in the body. Um, and this is often confusing. And that story is a very common story. Circumstances are different, but yeah. these arousal templates get set up very early on. And when they're fused with shame, humiliation, fear, um, that I think does become a repetition compulsion because they're adaptive strategies in the central and autonomic nervous systems So that's why people can't not do what they do. Because it's already built in. It's built in and it's what it's arousing and it's confusing because it's so shameful and they hate themselves for it, but there's no other orgasm like it.
1: Yes. Uh, That's a great uh, point to make. Uh, uh, That would be like a woman who's been molested in childhood who has rape fantasies.
2: Yeah. And rape fantasies is one of the number one fantasies of women between the ages of 20 and 40. Mm-hmm. It's a very common fantasy. doesn't mean that women want to be raped. It's just, it's very arousing. Um, there's fear in that and there's
1: domination in that. Right. So the fear goes hand in hand with the sexual arousal. Yeah, because it's both, it's the arousal system. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's so the people that come into your office uh, are uh, shame based and they're self loathing mm-hmm. and the consequences they're facing typically when they're knocking on your door? Well, that's usually loss of a marriage
2: or a primary relationship. Um, There are people who are single who bring themselves into treatment because um, they realize that they just keep choosing the same bad person over and over and over again. Um, and they, it's self-destructive, and they aren't able to put together a relationship. So one way or the other, people recognize that they're not functioning well, they're in pain, they're in trouble, and they don't know what to do. And often, you know, the shame, I think, is the cause and effect of the sex addiction itself. Um, so it's, I, it's both. Yes. I mean, I have a patient who says that his sex addiction was like a war, because he was having sex with so many people every single day, Um, and that it was just exhausting to him.
1: Now, can you say something about the partners of sex addicts and what they suffer?
2: Um, Yes. I mean, the partners suffer greatly, and it's a real conundrum um, helping people put these marriages back together. But um, they are suffering extreme attachment assault, you could say, Mm -hmm. um, that we grow very, very distinct um, attachment strategies in our brains to those that we love that we're closest with, you know, our bodies, um, our brains, there's a synchronization that happens between two people, even when we sleep, um, the ways that we co-regulate each other, and that becomes familial. And we trust that, Mm -hmm. like we trust our very own selves. And when that process is shattered it's physically painful because it hits particular parts of the brain and the body and it feels like you know we've just been you know an appendage has been cut off it's a withering it's uh physically painful and you hear that in the symptoms of partners early on where um they can't stop crying or they have you know vomiting diarrhea um anxiety or panic attacks inability to eat, to compulsive overeating. I mean, all of these symptoms are indicative of an acute stress disorder. So it really decimates the partner's, um, not just sense of self, but body. You know, I was thinking the other day how uh, Dan Siegel and many other people say that, you know, our minds exist in relation to other minds, And if you're in a room full of crazy people, or if you had to go to prison, God forbid, and you imagine being in a high security maximum prison as a woman, and I thought I would go out of my mind because the minds around me were distorted. And that's what happens with partners is their reality is no longer anything they can hang their hat on, and they feel like they're drowning or tumbling in a wave or going crazy,
1: because they're being lied to, and because they suspect something's wrong, and they're the person with the addiction is lying to cover up the addiction, and they they do they're not validated right, and they're or
2: not- when they find out something's wrong, what they thought was real was not real. That's even more maddening, I think.
1: Yes, like um, maybe a twenty year marriage, or try forty year mm. marriage
2: where the person hasn't been faithful for one day of that forty year thirty six year marriage.
1: So they wonder, uh, was, was it was a lie? So. Right, exactly. Right. Was it real? Maybe they have an attachment disorder, so they don't know how to do intimate connecting anyway. Yeah, I would say they all have attachment disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know,
2: this is not to make sex addicts sound like they're all these, these poor, sweet, injured souls. Right. There's something nefarious also about the level of lying that can go on, deceit, um, stealing of family funds, Um, It it looks very antisocial, you know, in magnitude, depending on how extreme the
1: person's behaviors are.
2: Right. Uh, So it's both and.
1: Both and. And we just have to wait until they get into treatment to see what the real person is.
2: Right. And likewise with the partners, while they are annihilated initially, it doesn't mean they don't have their own issues um, and their old traumas aren't getting reactivated also. I mean, it's really very, very multi-layered. Um, It's complex. You can't reduce it to, it's either this or that.
1: Now, we're going to have to take a short break. Uh, You are listening to Dr. Alexandra Katahakis. And when we come back, we'll be talking about uh, how to treat sex addiction, uh, as well as uh, the difference between sex addiction and love addiction, and uh, how to talk to your child about pornography and sex. So you won't want to miss this. We'll see you back in a few minutes.
0: Treatment of Opioid Use Disorder is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This comprehensive video covers how to talk to patients about three FDA-approved treatment options, the research behind each medication, and how to help patients choose the right medication for them. You'll learn everything you ever wanted to know about these treatment options to be able to treat patients in your office with ease. This video simplifies the prescribing of buprenorphine and includes buprenorphine home induction instructions for patients and pamphlets for patients and their families. Visit DrPatriciaHalligan.com for more information. Benzodiazepines, the epidemic we aren't talking about, is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This very comprehensive video describes the dangers of taking benzodiazepines and Z-drugs long-term and teaches how to deprescribe them safely and effectively. We outline how to talk to your patients before, during, And after a long, slow Valium taper, how to build your patient a village of support and offer a de-prescribing toolkit. Find out more about this package and what it includes. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com. You are listening to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Patricia Halligan, or if you struggle with addiction and would like information about resources that can help, send an email to p.halligan.md@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's phalliganmd at gmail.com. Now, back to Recovery, The Hero's Journey.
1: We're back to Recovery, The Hero's Journey, and we've been talking with Dr. Alexander Katahakis about the early attachment wounds of childhood that lie behind uh, many people with sex addiction. Uh, Dr. Uh, Katahakis, can you say something about what's important in the treatment of treating someone with a sex addiction and where do they go for help and where do they find help? Hmm.
2: Well, I'm extremely biased in my answer to that question. So I want to be clear about that because time (laughs) and time again, I see people who go see generic therapists and they just don't get the help they need. And the sex addiction treatment model is a, um, a very cognitive behavioral model in the beginning where a, a qualified therapist immediately asks the person what they're up to they cut to the chase immediately and they're looking to help the person stop those behaviors immediately so it's what we would call a containment model on the front end so it's about looking at what you're doing what you're thinking um, and how you can stop those behaviors with assistance. It isn't just, you know, that simplistic, like you just need to stop it. You don't need a therapist for that. Right. Um, but somebody who's going to early on give that person direction on how they can stop it by helping them make what we call a, an abstinence or sobriety plan. Um, of the behaviors they just don't wanna engage in anymore and helping them look at what all their triggers are, what activates them to move towards those maladaptive coping skills and then replace those with healthy life affirming coping skills. So right off the bat, we're helping people get clear about what they can and can't do and where they should reach when they're in trouble emotionally. If they're stressed out or lonely or tired or um, got into an argument with their boss, um, what else can they do? So it's a very directive, uh, very clear map early on. And when I say early on, I'm talking about the first 30, 60, 90 days. Um, and that is, you know, essentially the Carnes model, um, which is where people that are certified sex addiction therapists start, or are trained in that model. My contribution to the field has been looking at long-term psychotherapy for long-term change, Um, And also making the Carnes model a sex positive model um, through the work I did in my own dissertation and also my last workbook, which is called Sexual Reflections. Um, Because one of the criticisms of the addiction model is that it's sex negative, that you're just supposed to stop having sex altogether and nobody tells you what you're supposed to do, which is a very old conceptualization of the model. Yes, it sounds very punishing. It is very punishing, right? Yeah. Um, so now we actually have a sex therapy model that rounds that off that says sex is good and beautiful and delightful. And what can you be doing that you enjoy that doesn't make you feel shameful or abusing yourself or other people or secretive for that matter?
1: I love that. I read your book, The uh, mm-hmm. Erotic Intelligence How to Have oh. Hot, Healthy Sex After, you know, Once You're in Sexual Recovery and Give right. It to a Couple of Patients. Uh, it's, it's hopeful.
2: Yes, and Sexual Reflections is an actual compendium workbook for that that has people doing a lot of writing about what they do and don't like sexually, what's triggering, what isn't, et cetera. It's quite explicit. Um, And so the, the end point is a healthy sex life, but in the beginning it is about stopping everything so that the person can start to notice what they're feeling, what they reach for. And the therapist can also start to see, you know, does this person suffer from anxiety or depression Um, or do they have an obsessive compulsive issue, or is this just a problem of long-term habituated behaviors uh, in any case, it's how do we help the person best, and we can best see them when they stop
1: these behaviors and allow the brain, uh, well, the the field to lie fallow, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and and the brain can rewire itself gradually over time. The person mm-hmm. can catch up to his feelings or her feelings.
2: Correct. Uh,
1: I love that. So maybe a ninety day period of abstinence where uh, the behaviors are already defined. I'm not going to masturbate. I'm not going to look at porn. Right. Uh, I'm not going to flirt at the water cooler. Whatever the two whatever of you the decide. The problem is yes. Right.
2: Yeah, and it should be a collaborative conversation between the therapist and the client. Mm. Um, so the ther- so everyone's in agreement that this is the best course of action. Um, so it's not punitive, it's not judgmental, it's not colonizing in any way. It's about let's look at this together and let's see what we can do to help you um, have the kind of life you say that you want to have. Yeah, so it's very, yeah, it's very structured in the beginning and it's mm-hmm. a treatment model in the beginning, but over time it moves to a more
1: dynamic psychotherapeutic model in
2: my thinking.
1: It sounds very sophisticated and I think very, very positive. I bet the patients really love being uh, in collaboration with you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, where, what do you offer at the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles in terms of uh, help for people with sex addiction?
2: Well, certainly this individual therapy that I'm talking about, but one of the things we know is that addicts get better in group. And so group therapy is something we offer here. We have nine different groups, um, you know, two women's intimacy groups, a pornography group, men's sex and love addiction groups. Um, And it's so group therapy and 12-step meetings are so incredibly powerful because people don't have to feel alone. Um, It reduces shame rapidly. Um, people can start to help each other through the process because they've already walked down that road. And I just can't say enough of how much I love group therapy and how much of a powerful modality I think it is. That's why we have so many groups here. Um, We also offer, uh, we were offering weekend workshops, but with the advent of COVID, we've been doing day-long workshops on Zoom, um, both for men who are love addicted and women that are love addicted. Um, and we have workshops coming up for women in June 26, And I think the men's workshop is um, September 18th. So that's in the fall. And then we offer couples therapy here, group therapy and intensive outpatient programs for both men and women.
1: Oh, that's magnificent. And I love the idea of the Zoom one day workshop. I mean, mm-hmm. who, who can't afford one day on Zoom? You don't have to travel, right? right? And it's relatively anonymous if you're on Zoom with people from all over the country. Oh, all over the world, actually. We've all had people the come world. as far as Australia and Belgium and oh, the UK. That's it, wonderful. I, I agree with the group therapy uh, for anybody suffering from an addiction because people learn, like you say, not only if I'm looking at you and you're telling my story, I'm saying, well, she's lovable. She's mm, not that bad. Right. I'm not judging her the way I judge myself, but yet we did the same things. Correct. So it helps reduce my shame, helps me feel less alone, less isolated, helps me feel joined to um, another human being. And then people in the group are going to be sympathetic toward me. At some point, they're going to reach out. They're going to connect with me. They're going to say soothing things to me that make me feel better. That might be the first time in my life I've ever experienced co-regulation, which I know you've talked about in your books. Um, as opposed to just uh, using alcohol, drugs, or sex to soothe myself. So that's the first experience toward a healthy, secure attachment, right, with another human being as opposed to a substance.
2: Yes, and there are studies that show that 12-step meetings and fellowship change people's capacity for intimacy. It changes their attachment styles. Isn't that Uh, fantastic? It's beautiful. It's really a beautiful thing. That's why I I can imagine, and I've talked to people who – you know, got sober during COVID and it was really, really hard to do it on Zoom. It's much better in person Mm -hmm. because like you say, people will, you know, ask you for your phone number, call you, check in on you, see how you're doing. Um, Nobody has to get sober from any addiction alone ever. There's so much help out there and so many people willing to help other people, um, which is necessary because these are diseases of isolation, if you will.
1: So you can't get, uh, you, you don't want to recover from sex addiction with a therapist that's not trained specifically in how to treat people with sex addiction. Correct. And you don't want to, you don't want to just buy a self-help book and treat yourself. You, want, you don't want to do it in isolation. You need right. other people to develop a healthy attachment style.
2: Yeah. You can't watch a YouTube video and get over your sex addiction. Ugh, that would be easy. <laughs> it would be, but it's yeah. not life.
1: No. Well, now Tell me the difference between love addiction and sex addiction.
2: Well, they are in some cases, flip sides of the same coin. It just depends on the person. But love addiction is more of a pathological or problematic relationship with the notion of love. So we see people that struggle with unrequited love, they live in fantasy about people that are often unavailable or hurtful or abusive in some ways, which makes them unavailable, uh, but they can't ever quite consummate a solid, secure relationship because they're chasing the fantasy of who they want the person to be and not paying attention to the reality of who they actually are. So. If you're dating someone and they say you're gonna, they're gonna call you and they don't, that's kind of a red flag. Right. And if they say, "Well, I lost my cell phone or whatever," and then they do call, you're like, "Oh, okay." Then maybe it just was what it was. Right. Um, but if it's constant excuses and you keep trying to make it okay for them, then yeah. you really have to look at why am I chasing somebody who is not giving me what I want and need? Right. And that, of course, goes back to a childhood where the person couldn't get what they wanted and needed.
1: It's, i don't know about you but i find people with love addiction harder to treat than the people with a sex addiction because they really people with love addiction in my practice don't want me to tell them that it's impossible to fill yourself up and fill up that inner emptiness by falling in love with somebody they right. they get mad at me if i even try to suggest that they, they really hang on to this belief that if I can find someone to adore me, if I can merge with someone who's a soulmate, then my inner emptiness from childhood will disappear. I will feel beautiful uh, or intelligent or worthy, but don't tell me that I have to do that on my own. Right. And
2: that's why Pia Melody, who wrote the book um, Facing Love Addiction, um, is very clear that you, know, you can only get love addicts in treatment there when there's a crack in the system. It's a very yes. small opening because right. what happens in the love addicted cycle is that when there is a problem in the relationship, the love addict will do everything they can to repair it. Um, or they'll get rid of that person and get into a new relationship immediately.
1: There's always a backup plan.
2: That's right. So they will always start the cycle again. You know, it's like wash, what is that? Wash, rinse, repeat. Yes. uh, Until they're really in pain and they don't have a replacement part. That's what will bring a love addict into treatment typically.
1: I love your uh, one-day workshops for love addiction. You're not ignoring that population because they suffer extremely. Yeah, and they're really, I have to say,
2: fantastic um, workshops. I love doing them. They're a lot of fun. We get 30 or 40 women or men um, on the calls. And we do a lot of experiential work, a lot of writing, um, and people sharing their stories also. And so a lot of people's
1: recovery in um, a very positive way, I think. That's incredibly healing. Now, can you say something? You said something about a $100 billion a year pornography industry. Can yeah. you say something about how that hurts uh, young men in terms well, of uh, sexual functioning?
2: yeah, I think again, it's it's hard to generalize it because it depends on the particular brain, on the genetics, on the family setting. I, have, I mean, I have uh, males that came from unbelievably educated and wealthy families who really suffered intense porn addictions by the time they were twenty one years old and had difficulty getting erections. Um, didn't know how to communicate in real time with real females. Um, Some of them became drug addicts and alcoholics as a result of it. Um, But when you think about the brain, this nascent brain that is forming rapidly um, like a sponge from birth, really, you know, you know, it slows down at some point, but really we think until 30 before it's completed right. roughly. And you've got boys especially that are very um, attracted to the digital world. There's something about the digital and the boy brain that's like a hate seeking missile. Mm-hmm. And so this child starts looking at internet pornography, which at the average age now is eight years old. Oh, that's is, alarming. Yeah, it's alarming. But I've had patients wow. as young as five and six years old See these images, and the brain is not ready to see those images yet. It's so mm-hmm. unusual. It's like looking at a dismembered body. It's pretty ter- It's pretty terrifying. It's terrifying, it's disgusting. It registers yes. deep in the gut. Yes. Um, and then the child feels disgusted and dirty, and at yes. the same time,
1: the arousal system is activated. So there, there's this uh, arousal template beginning right there, that the right. fishing lines are getting tangled already.
2: And the pornographers know that also and so you know this child is looking at this over and over and over again the way you see boys gaming or you know on their cell phones they can't not look at it and their brains start getting wired around these images these these neurons are firing together and wiring together and so when people young men can't get an erection that's not a penile problem that's a brain problem there's fatigue in the brain, there's not enough arousal, so it's about upping the ante all the time, and it becomes deeply problematic for some. Um, And so by the time they're in their late 20s, I mean, we have more men coming in for erectile dysfunction than ever in their late 20s, early 30s. And historically, that's been like an old man's problem.
1: Yes, it really has been. So this is uh, having trouble having an erection when they're with a real live girl. Correct, or or boy. Boy, yep, yeah, Uh, but not with they can only have it when they're doing uh, pornography,
2: correct? Because they don't have the experience of close in intimacy, of eyeball to eyeball intimacy. We know from research that fewer young people, teenagers, um, are dating, um, are even having sex, like the sex rate is low with teenagers today. So, there's this developmental delay that's occurring as a result, I think, of all. Um, really, of the digital technology um, and a discomfort with getting to know someone. You know, kids talk about it's so awkward and uncomfortable, but that's part of dating and falling in love when you're 15, 16, 17 years old. But so much of that's Mm -hmm. been stripped out.
1: Right. So it's the lack of stimulation with a real partner. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the intimacy level is way too high. Uh, They're not anonymous anymore like they are when they're having cyber sex. Right. This is a real human being. So they're scared of the intimacy. There's not enough stimulation that they're used to. Uh, it's vulnerable. And uh, yeah, it's not uh, Photoshopped. It's not real. It's not I real. Mean, that's the problem is, you know, it's, it is not
2: a real relationship. And the stimulus and response is flipping open the laptop and clicking on the porn site it isn't seeing someone and thinking they're beautiful or hot right. or exciting and right. looking into their eyes and their right. skin and the way they smell and their hair feels. Right. Um, it's a, just a whole digital experience now. And, and, it's, and it's isolating. Very isolating. Yeah. Because right. there's so much shame and there's also a developmental delay Because people, you know, when we go through puberty, 14 years old, 13, 14, all these hormones start to come online. And that's when we have crushes and we start to fall in love. And with appropriate sex education and parenting, a child is sort of stewarded through their first love experience. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, But no one does that anymore. or It's rare, I should say.
1: It's very old fashioned these days. It is. That's right. Even the word like
2: going steady is like, no one even knows what that means.
1: Right. I think I did ask somebody, you know, if they were dating and the young person just said, well, people don't date anymore. That's right. It's just a hookup
2: culture now.
1: Yes. You know, what would you recommend to a parent of a, uh, I guess, uh, any child, girl or boy? And at what age do you have the conversation about pornography and about sex?
2: Well, there's this saying that if you think it's time to talk about pornography and sex, it's too late, Ah. because your kids have already been exposed to it. And so I think, you know, starting in kindergarten is when the conversation about sex education should begin, as simply as talking about, you know, the child's body and their right to their body and no one else gets to touch it. And these age appropriate conversations um, developmentally about what happens, you know, at like eight, nine years old, you know, what happens if you like a girl or boy at school and, you know, holding hands and asking to touch somebody um, and then talking about internet pornography, you know, at eight, nine years old, because it's a lot younger, they know how to, um, you know, use keywords, like a child might click on something like Hello Kitty, right, which is a product for little girls. But Kitty could also be connected to a pornography site. And get there accidentally. The next thing you know, your child's looking at pornography, and that wasn't what they were seeking. So putting parental controls on electronics early on, I think is a must for parents, since we don't get the option to opt in or opt out um, to have porn on our computers. So right. the parents have to take an active role in monitoring electronic use, pornography use, knowing who their kids' friends are, and having these conversations with them and staying one step ahead of your children.
1: And asking maybe at the age of eight, "How do you know what pornography is? Do you know what yes. porn is? Have any of your friends uh, tried to show you any? That's because, because
2: they do. They think right. it's funny. And you know, kids that age are goofy. Yeah. So Get a group in a room, like three or four of them in a room, and they'll they'll show the one who hasn't seen it in front of the others, and they laugh and think it's funny, right? Uh, But it is offensive, really.
1: Yes, and it's and they're not ready; their brains aren't wired to uh, to see it. They don't know what to do with it. Yeah, they don't know how to metabolize it. Right? Yeah, exactly. I no, I, I like I like your suggestions. Is there a good book that you'd recommend for parents? I know there's that there's a site, uh, your, your Brain on Porn.
2: Well, that's, yeah, Gary Wilson's, but I think Jennifer Weeks has written a book who's in the CSAT community um, for parents and how to talk to their children about pornography specifically. I'm sorry, I'm not remembering the name of it right now. Oh, that's uh, Jennifer Weeks?
1: Yeah, correct. Okay, wonderful. That's helpful. And, and this is what parents are wondering. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to keep up with this world. It's so fast paced. Yeah, it's changing all the time. And I I do want to ask, just before we quit, uh, the difference between sex addiction and sex offending.
2: Well, um, that is a big question. It is. Um, Offending behaviors are non-consensual behaviors. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is, um, you know, the sort of old-fashioned peeping Tom, what we call voyeurism, sort of looking at people without their consent, or physically exhibiting their body without somebody's consent... Um, touching someone without their consent. These are all arrestable behaviors. Um, And just because somebody engages in offending behaviors does not mean they are sexually compulsive or addictive. However, there are offenders who are also sex addicts. But sex addicts um, are generally in the middle of the bell curve where they are having sex with other adults who are consenting to the behavior. Um, they're not pedophiles because they're sex addicts. They're not touching children. Right. Um, right. They're not doing things that are illegal. Um, well, of course, sex work is still quote illegal, but it's so prevalent in our culture. You know, I wonder how much in our, you know, the vice just looks the other way, honestly, about that now. Yes. Um, so it's really about, if it's between two consenting adults, it's not offending behavior. So, and, most sex addicts are not sex offenders, but sex offenders can be sex addicts.
1: That's helpful. And the people that we've been talking about today, just to make it clear to the listening audience, are people with sex addiction. Correct. Right? Yeah, that uh, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Uh, uh, this has been a pleasure. And if somebody has a problem with sex addiction in the listening audience, or they know someone uh, who's suffering uh, from sex addiction, uh, let's uh, invite them to check out the centerforhealthysex.com, right? Yes and our phone number is
2: 310-843-9902 and we have intake counselors that are answering the phone all the time. And- um, and if we can't help you here in Los Angeles we have a broad net of resources all over the country where we can give you resources in your hometown.
1: So there is hope. This is a treatable disorder and, and marriages can be saved and uh, relationships marriages can be, be saved.
2: saved. People can redeem themselves. I see people improve their lives greatly by going through the recovery process. Um, and I always say recovering sex
1: and love addicts are some of the best people I know. Me too. And, and the shame, it's possible to release yourself from the shame yeah. uh, and uh, move from a, uh, a, unhealthy sex to uh, healthy intimacy. Yes. Can you give us the phone number one more time? Sure. It's 310-843-9902. Beautiful. com. Well, I hope everybody has a wonderful week and uh, please join us next week at Recovery, uh, The Hero's Journey.
0: Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, The Hero's Journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.